the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to Simple Truth Moments. We are uh, proceeding in the series of the book, authored by Don Enavolson called The Kingdom, and the subtitle under that is From Creation to the Millennium. Uh, We left off on chapter 18 last week, uh, entitled Power and Authority, and we need to finish that chapter up before we get to chapter 19. I think we'll be able to do both this morning. It's called Pursuit of Power in chapter 19. So let's finish up where we left off last week. We were talking about um, the difference and the relationship between authority and power in the kingdom of God context. And um, we were talking about, uh, in Luke chapter 10, 19, when uh, Jesus sends out the 70, um, and even in uh, Matthew chapter 10, when he sends out the 12 apostles, he's sending them out to proclaim the kingdom, but he uh, commissioned them. It's kind of like how an officer gets a commission Uh, in the military academies. Um, You receive not only a diploma when you graduate, but you also receive what they call an officer's commission, which happens to be signed by the uh, commander-in-chief. So you receive two items upon graduation from a military academy. You receive your diploma for whatever your major was in, but um, you also receive simultaneously a commission to become a military officer. So it's interesting that this uh, language here on page 145 of the book, it says when Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom, he commissioned them with authority first. Um, In Matthew, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We see that in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 1. In Mark, he sent them out to, quote, to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We see that in Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 15. Luke cites Jesus giving them both power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, as we see in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. But in the next chapter, the priority of authority and power is demonstrated in the Lord's statement to his uh, disciples as he sends them out. This is out of Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 19. Notice the uh, syntax and the order of things here. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, comma, and over all of the power of the enemy. And the author says, in other words, your authority... Mr. Disciple, as you be being sent out by the Lord, your authority will dominate the enemy's power. So the author goes on to try to make a distinction 
the simple way to envision the difference between authority and power, according to the authors, to picture a police officer. He wears a badge. That badge represents the authority or legal permission, if you will, or the right, the legal right invested in the police officer by the community. And the purpose of that is to enforce the law. The police officer, according to the author, also carries a weapon. He also carries a gun, which provides part two of this equation, which provides the power to enforce his authority. But in the kingdom, in God's kingdom, the two are divided. Authority or legal permission resides in that part of God's sovereignty. I'll read it again. Authority resides in that part of the sovereignty of God that has been delegated to human beings. As you recall, the, this level of authority, of near total authority, can be seen in the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And here we have Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, which is his Jewish name. Yeshua means, uh, is the Jewish name for Jesus, and HaMashiach, Ha is the, and Mashiach is Messiah. Authority is being given over delegated, redelegated, if you will, and restored, if you will, to the original authority that was given to Adam and Eve in the first two chapters. So the restoration of the kingdom is all about giving back something that was earlier lost in the third chapter of Genesis, when man, unfortunately, handed over, relinquished his authority over to Satan after he was deceived with Satan's suggestions that God wasn't trustworthy and maybe he's holding out on you, maybe he's fearful of you, maybe he's jealous of you because he doesn't want you to be like him. And the irony was Adam and Eve were already at the likeness of God and they lost even that when they basically, by agreeing with Satan, with his suggestions, they're in essence made a, a, a legal contract with him by saying, yeah, we're going to be part of this rebellion against the Father. All right, so, so authority resides in that part of God's sovereignty that has been delegated to humanity. The power to enforce that authority resides, now listen, this is really important, in the spiritual entities of the invisible spiritual world. So you see how that's separated. The authority resides in that part of God's sovereignty that has been given or delegated to human beings, but the power to enforce the authority, in other words, the weapon of the policeman, to enforce the authority, which is the badge, it resides in spiritual entities of the invisible spiritual world. It is not far off the mark, per the author, to assert that human beings have almost unlimited authority on earth. That was the original intention that we see in God's blueprint in Genesis 1 and 2. But it's also true that Human beings have almost no actual power to enforce that authority. While the angels, on the other hand, have almost unlimited power, but they have almost no authority beyond what they have been given by human beings. Notice, Satan couldn't really operate after his rebellion in the second heaven that we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. He couldn't operate in the earth unless and until he could get legal permission or authority, because that's what authority is. It's legal permission to operate with his power on earth. So 
he wasn't going to get authority from Father God. No chance of that. But if he could persuade, if he could cajole, if he could deceive someone who did receive legal authority to rule and reign on earth, to have dominion over the earth, well, then he could get legal authority through agreement by convincing human beings who were given incredible authority in Genesis 1 and 2 to have dominion over the earth. He, Satan, could then appropriate the human being's authority, and he could now operate with his residual power on earth. The question becomes, how is the authority that is given to man from God, how can that be passed on to spiritual beings, or delegated, if you will? And so the author says, let's take a look at the different ways that can happen. Uh, One of the most obvious is, of course, sin, rebellion against God. The consequences of sin, as discussed, uh, he mentioned earlier in chapter 6, Uh, The consequences of sin open the door to opportunistic evil spirits who find authority for their own spiritual rebellion in the rebellion of human beings. The author points out that uh, curses hurled from one human being to another are essentially commands that authorize evil spirits to act out to act, to carry out the content of the curse. I'll read that again. Curses hurled from one human being to another are essentially commands that authorize evil spirits to act. Now, one of the most obvious of um, stories about, it's a little bit incongruent at, at, at first glance, is the story of Job. What happened there? In one way, uh, Father God was bragging about Job, about all of his qualities. He's portrayed as um, being blameless and upright, uh, one who feared God, and he turned away from evil. You can see that in Job 1, um, verse 1. And thus, sin didn't seem to be the source of, of Satan's authority, yet Satan was able to get permission, legal permission from God to attack him anyway. And you can see that in, uh, again, the first chapter of Job, if you look at the 12th verse, and then go on to uh, Job 2, verse 6. Job is presented as a man of innocence. Uh, He lost everything, his family, his possessions, his health. But the theme of the book of Job is not an explanation of authority so much as this. The theme of the book of Job deals with the mechanics or the mechanism, if you will, of how Satan obtained authority from Job. Um, there's an indication in the book of Job of what opened Job to Satan's attack. If you look at chapter 3 of the book of Job, uh, Job is lamenting his situation, wishing he had, wishing he had never been born. Uh, in Job 3.25, near the end of the chapter, he makes a confession, though. What we're looking for is doors, windows, somehow a passageway, a portal, if you will, of how Satan can obtain authority from someone who has it. And in Job 3.25, he indicates, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Again, Job 3.25. Job feared the very losses that he ultimately ended up sustaining. Job feared the very losses he ultimately ended up sustaining. That this is true was indicated in the first chapter. In Job um, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, what do we see? We see him, Job, being concerned about the behavior of his children. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. They would send and invite their three sisters to come over and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them 
And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, quote, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually uh, offer up those burnt sacrifices. Because Job feared, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, now has legal permission to come before God. Uh, And basically as the accuser, he is the accuser of the brethren. That's what Revelations 12.10 tells us. And he obtains authority or permission to implement power for Job's harm. According to the author, this story presages the New Testament emphasis on faith as being a vital part of kingdom life. In essence, this is important, fear is misdirected faith. I'll say it again. In essence, fear is misdirected faith. He gives a couple examples. One is only afraid of something because of a belief they have. That, or in other words, a faith. That there's a real potential for harm against them. One of the examples um, that the author gave to me, uh, in a, a verbal example, was, it's not in the book, but basically if you're coming down uh, a dark alley and uh, you see a good friend of yours and he has an open um, stiletto or pocket knife, and but you know who this person is, even though it's dark, it's at night, you're not going to f- basically fear him because you know that person, and that person does not intend to do you harm. But if you change the context and you change the circumstances, if you in that same situation, the same scenario, at night, you see the knife being carried by an individual, but this is a stranger. This is someone you do not know. Well, then you have a belief or a realization or faith that there's real potential for harm here. So according to kingdom law, again, reading from the book, um, it's basically Jesus telling, uh, I'm trying to think when that was, it was uh, Matthew 9, verse 28 through 29. According to kingdom law, let it be done according to your faith. Here's the example in the New Testament. Jesus asked two blind men, quote, do you believe that I'm able to do this? talking about the miraculous. Uh, They answered in the affirmative, and Jesus said, quote, according to your faith, or according to the Jewish Bible, it would say, according to your trust, be it done to you. So faith is an activator of authority in order to point it in a direction to ultimately release power. As we see, we're going to see also, obedience has the same function to take the authority that has been given, delegated from God to man. And in order to make sure that the power that flows eventually being divine power and not occultic power, what you have to include there is a bridge, a bridge between the word authority and the word power. The bridge is called the bridge of obedience. Jesus demonstrated that over and over. He always obeyed the Father's will. And once he knew what the Father's will happened to be in a particular situation, Jesus realized that he had the authority directly given to him, delegated by the Father to him. And he knew in order to guarantee that the enemy couldn't come in and maneuver uh, and try to have occultic power somehow uh, be manifested, Jesus would always make sure, always, that he was carrying out exclusively the Father's will. So getting back to this fear with Job, 
The author says, no wonder the command of, to quote, fear not, appears more than a hundred times in the Bible. Because of this, listen carefully, fear subverts authority. And it is authority which determines the direction and the manifestation of power. Bill Johnson um, up in Bethel used to preach um, this in this way. Faith and fear both demand to be fulfilled. So if you live in fear and the things of which you are fearful of, that is a trigger, if you will, to have the resulting consequence that what you fear will come about. And on the other hand, if you have faith and trust and you put your trust and faith in, for example, a promise that comes directly from Father God, it works the same way. Faith demands also to be fulfilled. So let me go back and read this last line on page 147 in this paragraph. The author says, fear subverts our authority that we receive from God. Fear subverts it. It undermines it. And authority determines the direction and the manifestation of power. But the, unfortunately, if you're living in fear, well, it's going to impact the direction of power and the, how the power is manifested because you are undermining the function of authority. The author goes on to say both, both power and authority are essential elements in the kingdom of God. He gives an example. Power is necessary for the effectiveness or the carrying out of the purpose of the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, we see Paul writing, quote, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Jesus instructed his followers to wait for power before they even tried to go out and preach. In Luke 24, 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, he said, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power was linked to kingdom authority. Okay, everyone got that. Power was linked to the kingdom ministry. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 8. So, as we go over here to the next page, we're going to wrap this chapter up. I'm going to summarize it here. Power was provided externally. Nevertheless, it was linked to authority. For example, that was what was Peter was, was trying to explain when he healed the, the lame individual uh, in he was in front of the um, the temple, and Peter and John were walking in. And when everyone marveled at the miracle that had just been carried out, Peter was trying to say, hey, don't think that this was something that came from us. It came from God. So power is provided externally, in other words, from an outside supernatural force. But nevertheless, power is linked to the authority given to man. An example, in the Garden of Eden, in a variety of ways, all throughout history, human history was relinquished in large part over to the demonic through fraud and deceit. But when Jesus came, he was all about the restoration of the kingdom, which involved the restoration of man's original authority of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to the creature who was actually designed through God's Father God's design protocols, the creature who was supposed to wield authority was mankind, not fallen angels. 
And the author says this is carried out only by revoking the earlier impartation of authority to entities other than human beings. So that pretty much wraps up that particular chapter. We're going to get into the pursuit of power, which is chapter 19. God bless you, and we will see you on the other side of the break. Welcome back, saints. We are finishing up the chapter 18 called Power and Authority of the Kingdom book from Creation to the Millennium by Don Enavoldson. And uh, we're going to jump into chapter 19, Pursuit of Power. Um, chapter 19 begins with uh, the discussion of the sorcerer, Simon, who lived in Samaria that we see in Acts chapter 8. Um, the author basically said when Philip, as an evangelist, came to town, um, Simon actually embraced the message of the kingdom, at least superficially, um, and he would be actually somebody who um, would people would like to say, gee, we have a sorcerer who even began, became a follower of Jesus, and that would have been big news uh, in that context back then. Um, and what happened was when the church leaders in Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Samaria, they sent Peter and John over to help teach and organize this new community. Um, one of the first things they began to do was lay hands on people and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And according to the passage in Acts 15 through 16, um, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But the author says the story then takes on an odd twist. So we have Simon the Magician, the one known as, quote, the great power of God prior to his uh, religious conversion. He saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and was so intrigued that he wanted the ability to lay hands on people and impart the Spirit himself. So um, Simon... Uh, approached Peter in Acts 8.18 through 19. And he offers Peter money, saying, quote, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Um, the author points out that Peter's response uh, put this request into perspective. He was rather blunt and harsh. And Peter says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And Peter tells Simon, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's in verses 20 through 23 of Acts chapter 8. So uh, Simon backs off quickly. He does uh, seemingly repent because he begs that, uh, pray for me to the Lord, that he tells Peter, for nothing of, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That's in Acts 8.24. Nevertheless, the story illuminates three points concerning the role of power in the early church. So the first point um, is that it's very important for ministry as a demonstration, if you will, of the truth of God's Word. So first, uh, power indicates the importance placed on the um, impartation of power for ministry. Uh, the church in Jerusalem in the first century began its existence with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we see in the second um, chapter of Acts, um, and Acts specifically defined in terms of power in Acts 1.8. Uh, Peter and John made power in the Samaritan church, their first order of business, because they began praying for an outpouring of the Spirit. The author says a powerless church is limited in its effectiveness 
because after all, it is powerless without power. And um, I'm not going to go into the second point so much because I think it's not all that clear about ecstasy and dunamis. Um, I think there's an overlap on on the uh, translation. But what I would like to uh, go on is the third point that the author talks about, which is this. Power can be sought out for the wrong reasons. And more importantly, those who seek it for the wrong reasons try to disguise or hide their motivation for seeking the power. Much spiritual abuse flows from the failure to recognize the difference between the exercise of power in ministry, and this is key, for the benefit of others and the exercise of power for personal control and the attainment of status. Um, The author points out Simon was more in the second category. He wanted to take advantage of the power for personal control and to raise his status. So to help understand this, um, the author points out the mechanics of magic require some examination. In other words, how does that work? What's going on behind the scenes? Contrary to modern perception, magic doesn't simply happen by magic. We need to pull back the curtain and see what's really going on behind the scenes here. Uh, Rather, it results from an interaction between a human sorcerer or a magician, if you will, and a spirit being, or plural, beings, known in the, as in the ancient world by names familiar to readers of the Bible. They were known as demons. They were known as fallen angels. They were known as gods with a small g. Now, the similarity, that this is what the author is saying, the similarity to prayer is remarkable. In the kingdom of God, human beings speak commands. For example, your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's in the Lord's Prayer. So in the kingdom of God, human beings speak commands with the authority invested in humanity. Again, we've been talking about that in the first two chapters of Genesis. So the authority is something that the human beings have in order to speak commands. Again, I'll use the example of your kingdom come, your will be done. But it's the angels and that's not humans now, it's the spiritual beings called angels who provide the power to carry out the commands. When prayer is conducted in the way God intends, the goal is to declare God's will and see it carried out by spiritual entities. So the authority component of this demonstration is vested in mankind as the authority is begun to be implemented as man carries out his authority his prayer is conducted in such a way as God intends in other words if you know God's will you've checked with him over and over and you're certain that God wants this done we have the authority to command it into being that's the way prayer is supposed to work. Not uh, guessing about what God wants, not trying to ascertain, or if, if you don't know, basically don't do it yet. Jesus, when he carried out the authority of the Father, he already knew what the Father wanted because he spent time in desolate places praying and spending time with the Father. So when we pray, uh, in a way as to be what God intends, in other words, thy will be done. Um, our goal is to declare God's will, say this is what God wants. We verify this, we double-check, we triple-check, we've done the fleeces, we've done the fasting, whatever it needed to, to do to verify that God wants this. And then it is then carried out the next power stage by, not by men, 
but by power entities called spirits. So in magic, the process was at least superficially the same. Now, this is, this is tricky business. We have to really look at this because there's sometimes razor-thin uh, differences between power being manifested in an occultic way versus power being manifested in a kingdom of God way by obeying God and having trust that you've heard from God and he wants this carried out. So the author goes into saying, in magic, the process, again, we're going to look at the occultic side now, the process was at least superficially the same. The the magician appeals to a spiritual being through the means of authority. And notice the magician is the one that has the authority. You're appealing to, not you, but the magician is appealing to a spiritual being through his authority to try to convince or coerce this spirit to perform some act of power. The biggest difference was in the motivation behind the prayer in the Christian sense or the magic spell in the occultic sense. In the kingdom of God, it is God's will, but with magic, it is the will of the magician, not Father God. The author N.T. Wright defines magic as the attempt to gain power over the creator's world without paying the price of self-giving obedience to the creator himself. I'm going to read that definition again. He defines magic as the attempt to gain power over the creator's world without paying the price of self-giving obedience to the creator himself. To become a magician, one had to first acquire control or authority over an angel or a demon, fallen angel or a demon, referred to in magical writings as, quote, an assistant, close quote. And then this assistant, excuse me, could be sent or commanded to go out and perform spells to influence people, to curse them, or any one of a long list of activities the magician might desire. Notice it says the magician might desire, not what was God's will. This was the essential, indispensable first act into magic. One could not become a magician without first connecting with a parhedros. That's the um, Greek for assistant. And I'm not sure I want to go into all of this. The author goes into a great amount of going back into the records of ancient spells and incantations back into uh, Egypt, back into the uh, magic institutions, going all the way back to the 1st century B.C., then to the 4th and 5th century A.D., copious directions, explain the importance and the purpose of the assistant, as well as the process for acquiring him. So this assistant so-called, becomes your companion. This assistant um, will reveal everything to you. This assistant will even eat and sleep with you if you want. That's what one of the documents um, that the uh, author uh, produced going way back into the uh, ancient uh, arts of magic, way back into the Egyptian times. A little later... The same papyrus, a specific spell is prescribed, I can't pronounce this, but the spell of Penusus, the sacred scribe for acquiring an assistant. Quote, um, later in the document, the magician speaks directly to his spirit assistant. Quote, I shall have you as a friendly assistant or a beneficent God, that's a little g, who serves me whenever I say, Quickly, by your power, now appear on earth to me. 
yea, verily, God, little g. And another manuscript instructs the magician to say, I adjure all um, assistants in this place to stand as helpers beside this daemon and arouse yourself for me. Um, Irenaeus, way back in the first century, even spoke of the Gnostic leader Marcion, who accused him of having a demon as an assistant that enabled him to prophesy. In the Greco-Roman period, control over a spirit was not necessarily achieved only by coercion. Rather, it was a matter of gaining familiarity through knowledge. And uh, Fritz Graf, who did some studies on this, explains an ancient magic. In the ancient magic of the papyri, it is knowledge that makes it makes it possible to communicate with the little gods, the G little gods. The person who knows the intimate details of the divine nature of this so-called friendly uh, assistant, and thereby demonstrates that he and she is a clo- is close to the little god, the little G, and commits the god to react favorably. Um, this is borne out in a variety of magical formulas. While not recognizing as absolute control, the use of the this is small s use of the spirits um, supernatural or secret name produced a level of influence tantamount to control. Um, so the the trick was find out what the name of this spirit is, and then you, as a human, can control it with your authority. An incantation intended to summon the help um, focuses um, on the name of the demon as a means to that control. After calling on, a, on the god, the magician would remind him, I know your foreign names, and then recites them. Um, so you can go into that more examples on the book, but I'm going to go into next that the spiritual world of Simon, who we started out with in this chapter, um, that he experienced before his conversion, involved this control of spirit beings. The spirit uh, beings in a rough hierarchy of little gods with a little g, angels and demons were brought under the authority of sorcerers, and they were coerced, or they were convinced, or they were leveraged to perform acts of power. Simon, the sorcerer, understood how that word world worked, how it functioned. He had been, quote, the great power, he being Simon. And now he saw no difference when he saw this new to him kingdom of God being manifested. He saw that human beings, the apostles in this case, exercised their authority to command through prayer and in response the Holy Spirit, the highest divinity, ended up being poured out on those human beings to provide power to back up their words. That's how he viewed it. But Simon demonstrated what his motivation was, which is typical of those who practice magic. His motivation was highly suspect. He had a personal agenda to, uh, to perform the rites and the incantations. Um, the manuscript quoted above promised a demon who would be an assistant who goes on to elaborate at length the things that an assistant would do. Um, this list is kind of long, but it, I think it's worth um, reading here. The sacred rite for acquiring an assistant, it's acknowledged that he is a god, little g. He's an aerial spirit, which you have seen manifesting himself to you. Uh, you give him a command, and right away he performs the task. He se- uh, the assistant sends dreams to you. He brings you women. He brings you men without the use of magical material. But yeah, this is where his true nature, you can see him. He kills. He destroys. He stirs up winds from the earth. He carries gold, silver, and bronze, and he gives them to you whenever the need uh, arises. And he frees from bonds a person chained in um, prison, or he he causes invisibility so that no one can see you at all. He is a bringer of fire, 
wine, bread, water, whatever you wish in the way of foods. And as soon as you order him to perform a service, he will do so, and you will see him excelling in other things. He will serve you suitably for whatever you have in mind. And so this is how you get an assistant according to the sacred rite. That's in the, um, you call it here. I really can't pronounce this, but this is in the sacred rite of, it's a word in Egyptian hieroglyphics that I cannot pronounce, but it's just to point out that how old this really is and that how this has transcended into additional cultures and additional times in history. So this doesn't change, these rules of what goes on behind the scenes. So the definition of magic, here you go, cut to the chase. It's the utilization of spiritual power by means of the magician's authority for the purpose of the magician's personal gain. It's his, the magician's desire to control such power, which laid behind Simon's request. And then acting on that desire demonstrated that Simon had changed little in spite of his conversion. He still thought in a self-centered, self-promoting manner of a sorcerer. He sought power. He didn't seek ministry. This was not for the benefit of others. It was for the benefit of him. So the author says, while Simon as the sorcerer is an easy target to demonize, the desire for power was disguised as ministry. Um, We see that uh, has plagued the church from its very beginning. We see lots of warnings about this in the New Testament. Paul warned, Tim- Paul warned Timothy about those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. We see that in 1 Timothy 6.5. The Apostle John wrote of a certain Diotrephes who likes to put himself first. That's in 3 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, Jude cautions his readers to become aware, uh, beware of grumblers and malcontents who show favoritism to gain advantage. That's in Jude 1, 16. He specifically referenced church leaders who were hidden reefs at their love fests. They were shepherds who fed themselves. That's in Jude one twelve. For the apostle Peter, they were irrational animals and blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception. You see that in Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse twelve through thirteen. But Peter was describing, nor was Peter describing those outside the church. He was describing those who had escaped their sin initially and then became apostates by falling away. So he says in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, their last state has become worse for them than their first. Even Jesus predicted that there would be false Christs and false prophets who would would deceive people by, listen, performing signs and wonders. He said that in Matthew 24, 24. He said it also in Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 22. This could be read as a warning not to put too much stock in the miraculous as proof of godliness. I'm going to read that again. This could be read as a warning by Jesus not to put too much stock in the miraculous as proof of godliness. Many tried to do just that, illustrated by Simon the sorcerer. Notice in Acts 19, verse 14, this is the seven sons of uh, Sceva, group of uh, Jewish sorcerers who made a practice of casting out demons by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And that did not end up well for them, as we can see in Acts chapter 19. There's a natural inclination for human beings to desire status that usually you see hand-in-hand working with the working of a miracle. And like Simon the sorcerer and the Jewish exorcist, the seven sons of Sceva, the power is seen as a means of inspiring awe by those who are observing and watching. Even the disciples themselves learned, and they leaned that way, that when a village in Samaria refused to receive Jesus, it was James and John who approached Jesus. They were eager to see vindication for their commitment to the message of the kingdom, and they asked, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We see that in Luke um, 9.54. They wanted immediate punishment for the wicked, but the author says that was hardly the message that Jesus wanted to convey, and he rebuked the two apostles. But the implication was there— Human beings love power, and after all, power gives status. So when Jesus sends out the 70, and we see in Luke 10, 19, um, his instructions were clear. He left no doubt that he expected the disciples to exercise power for these reasons, for the deliverance of the people 
from the clutches of the enemy so that everyone would know that the kingdom of God or the rule of God brings the following when you get delivered. You receive peace. You receive freedom from your oppression or your affliction. You get deliverance from the destructive effects of rebellion against God, of sin against God. He commanded them, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you that we see in uh, Luke 10 verse 9. He even cited the miracles as validation of the message that um, should have impacted those who saw the kingdom demonstrated in power. He chided the town called the Chorazin. Woe to you, he said. He said, woe to you, Bethesda, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Luke 10, Luke ten thirteen. But the miraculous was never the goal of Yeshua, of Jesus. It was only a means for deliverance. When the 70 returned, they were ecstatic about the power they had seen. They said, oh, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But Jesus pointed out that, that what they should really rejoice in is that the, not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't let this power go to your head. That's probably uh, all we're going to be able to do um, this week. We're almost finished with this pursuit of power. Um, Howard is abused, unfortunately, as a, um, and we're going to learn the principles that power flows from authority, and human beings do have great authority. Um, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, that's where we have to be careful. So God bless you. We will finish up this chapter next week. And in the meantime, may you continue to experience God's simple truth moments in your life. We'll see you next week. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.